Welcome to the podcast series Decoding Sustainable Finance, developed and presented by the Nova Center on Business, Human Rights and the Environment. Welcome to the Decoding Sustainable Finance podcast series, a podcast series developed by the Nova Center on Business, Human Rights and the Environment, Nova BHRE. My name is Asuja Bula. I am a research associate at Nova BHRE, and with my colleague, Jean-Maria Butalho, a research assistant also at the center, we'll be conducting the interview for this episode. Today's episode will focus on climate transition and physical risk. Within the literature, and also by following the civil society discourse, it is clear that climate risk drivers can be grouped into one of two categories, physical risks, which arise from the changes in weather and climate that impact the economy and transition risks, which arise from the transition to a low carbon economy itself. Physical and transitional risks are crucial considerations for sustainable finance because they can have a significant impact on the financial performance of investments and the overall stability of financial markets. Physical risks will be felt differently according to multiple factors and will give rise to many political and economic consequences. For example, we will have more climate refugees and countries with less economic power will be hit the hardest by climate change while they haven't significantly contributed to it. Additionally, although the transition to a low carbon economy is ideal, it should not be carried out without proper consideration to its risks for different societal and environmental indicators. To address this topic today, we are honored by the participation of Tiago de Melkertasch. Tiago de Melkertasch is a senior lecturer in environmental law in the University of Exeter, where he has founded the Exeter Center for Environmental Law, he is also the Director of Postgraduate Research for Humanities and Social Sciences, Cornwall. Previously, he was an invited professor in environmental law and administrative law at Nova School of Law, Lisbon, where he was awarded European PhD in law. Tiago has also founded and coordinated Nova Law Green Lab and was a postdoctoral researcher in the University of Surrey School of Law, working in transcontinental projects on governance and regulation of single-use plastics. He has also worked as an attorney for law firms in Lisbon and advised local and national governments in the field of environmental law and planning. In the Portuguese national government, he has also worked in the implementation of the Economic and Financial Assistance Program between 2011 and 2014 in the areas of environment and the economy. And under the Portuguese presidency of the Council of the European Union, Tiago has chaired the WPIEI Basel. Tiago, many thanks for accepting our invitation. So my first and our first question for you is, what are the most prevalent physical and climate transitional risks and what may arise in the future if we don't change course? Well, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, this first question is, well, it, it includes like one part that is, is more, well, it's easier to answer. And the second one, which is more 
almost like a $1 million question. But I would say that as uh, the most prominent physical and, and climate transition risks, I would say that uh, clearly we have been following them at the moment. We have seen destruction in lots of places in the world. We have been seeing disasters, an increasing number of disasters, such as more hurricanes, more climate, uh, other climate problems all over the world. And these things also affect, as Dusu was saying, possible migrations. So people and well, social groups that need to move from the place where uh, they live. And that will have effects in their own lives, but it will also have effects in the lives of other people. And that will have effects in nature as well, because you'll have more people living in one place, less people living in another place. And obviously, the consequences of all this will be very relevant. It doesn't mean that in some of the places, for example, the places that people leave, that doesn't mean that that will be better or worse for those places. But clearly, if you put lots of people in the same place, you have like the example of the growing cities all over the world, those understood as mega cities with more than 10 million people. And at the moment, we have around 40 mega cities all over the world. And obviously, it makes more complicated for governments, for uh, societies uh, to keep all this. As I was saying, we have hurricanes, we have the, the sea level rise. We have the examples of uh, countries such as uh, Tuvalu or Vanuatu. So in uh, last year for uh, COP26, we had the, the example of the minister from Tuvalu giving a speech with his feet on the water, demonstrating that in some years, that country can disappear. And not only Tuvalu, but all, all other countries such as Vanuatu or, the, or other Pacific islands. So we have these examples of countries that may disappear, of uh, people that may have to move, and they are moving at the moment from their uh, home places to others. But this can also create even, I don't know if there could be even worse than this, because it's difficult to be, but cases of wars, armed conflicts between different peoples and different nations. So I would say that these could be, are, and could be uh, the most prominent issues. But it seems that I'm only analyzing the human perspective, right? Because I'm, I'm talking of people, I'm talking of nations, countries, all that. This will certainly increase the disappearance of certain species, natural species. Well, it has been happening since the human beings are here. It happened before the human beings as well, as you know. Well, we still don't know exactly what happened to dinosaurs, but it will certainly happen to us and it will happen to other species. So if we don't change our behavior if you don't we don't change as human beings the way we are dealing with the planet clearly we will be seeing more cases such as these ones much more often right so i would say that for this first question this would be uh, maybe a bit longer <laughs> than expected but these are some of the issues i believe are really relevant to mention here Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, it was a really intense, but it was a good answer. I think my second question is a follow-up from the first one. So now we know the risks and we know what are the concerns, but what is the government's role in lowering these risks that we just spoke about? Well, we, we have been seeing some examples as well of what governments, or at least some governments have been doing. I would say that 
what they did from the beginning was to put people together, scientists uh, together discussing this around the, the 80s, so the 1980s from last century. And then scientists recommended solutions. But obviously, uh, what governments have been doing until now, it doesn't seem to be enough. So uh, governments can legislate, they can regulate, they can enact policies. But at the same time, they can put people together, put stakeholders together, bring, for example, the biggest companies in the world, the biggest corporations, and try to make them be part of this uh, transition, which obviously we know that some of the companies, and there's a a growing number of big corporations all over the world that are taking steps towards this movement. But clearly, uh, I would say that this is a huge responsibility uh, for governments. Governments have to have the responsibility because they represent their citizens and they represent their electors, their voters, and they clearly have to work more on not, as I say, not only on legislating or regulating or enacting policies, but trying to put people together to find solutions. And something that sometimes is forgotten, which is supporting more research. We can only take decisions and enact more policies or legislate if we have the results and the data about what's happening to the planet. So research is clearly essential. And if governments uh, stop giving money to universities, to R&D uh, entities, that will make their work more complicated. But, well, we have uh, these uh, cases of the European Green Deal, which is an excellent uh, example of and a good reference to, to the whole world, obviously, but it's not only happening in the EU, it's happening all over, all over the world. The governments contribute and have contributed to drafting the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change uh, from 1992, and then the, the example of uh, the Kyoto Protocol or the Paris Agreement. Governments have an important role because at the end, they represent the classical actors uh, and subjects of international law. The problem here is that there are other actors that aren't only uh, governments, and as I mentioned, huge corporations that some of them, well, are clearly uh, easy to guess who they are. But the thing is that some of them have more, much more power than states. And that's why they must be involved in the process. Thank you. Thank you very much for this answer. At Nova BGRE, we like challenging questions. So here's another good one. <laughs> so in your perspective, what are the specific characteristics and challenges for implementing legal frameworks concerning climate transition? Well, this is uh, something I, I, I've been trying to work on with uh, some colleagues in different places, but I would say that law still is very maladaptive. And when we think of uh, climate change and we, when we think of how the nature and at the same time, how social systems, ecosystems, technologies change, well, usually they would change even if we, we didn't have uh, climate change, but with climate change and with phenomena of climate change, obviously, these changes happen much faster than before. And that means that law always had this issue, this problem to accompany, to follow reality at, um, I would say, real time. Uh, because it's impossible, because law is made by human beings. So usually human beings need to 
respond to something that has happened. But at the same time, law always tries to, I would say, guess, and it's a part of law, right? When we have a, a provision, a legal provision, we try, uh, legislators try to guess what's going to happen to then uh, get the, the consequence, right? However, as things are being or are getting so difficult to guess, it's really complicated for law to to follow these uh, all these changes that are happening so quickly. Uh, so usually my suggestion in the, some of the studies I have been working in uh, has to do with making legal provisions and making legal frameworks more adaptive. Obviously, we would have we would need like an hour to speak or, more, or much more to speak uh, about this. But I would say that legislation, especially in the environmental areas, but not only in environmental areas, because obviously environment and climate is totally transversal and it affects all branches of law, but environmental law and climate law need to be more flexible, even if within the limits, uh, the boundaries of legal uh, security or legal certainty. And that's one of the biggest challenges for legal frameworks and even for judges, because judges need to be, I would say, updated. And sometimes it's not easy for judges to have the grasp of all disciplines and all areas that they have to decide. But we have examples such as New Zealand, where they have uh, environmental courts. So specialization is really important, and it's more difficult to find generalist lawyers nowadays than in the past because of this, because we, we are getting into a more and more specialized legal world. And I would say that adaptation is one of the biggest challenges for uh, law, for climate law, for environmental law, but also for other branches. Again, we need adaptation, but always within the limits of legal certainty. We completely agree. Talking about legal frameworks and adaptation that you just mentioned, there have been a lot of legislative developments within the EU. We know that various state members have passed laws or are thinking about passing laws in regards to due diligence. And at the same time that we currently have a draft proposal at the EU level throughout the directive, which has brought human rights due diligence to forefront, we want to ask you, how can human rights due diligence play a role in decreasing physical and transition risks and therefore contributing to the just transition? I would say that human rights due diligence would clearly play a paramount role in all this process of the transition because clearly it makes or it can make organizations more aware of what's happening and what they are doing because it's something similar to monitoring what is happening and what their behavior and their actions are. One thing that is really, or one element that is really, that is essential when we are applying environmental law or climate law, and one example of this is the environmental impact assessment or environmental permitting, for example, even when you give a statement, environmental impact statement or an environmental permit, you need to keep the activity, some monitoring for that uh, activity. So I would say that this is not only about uh, what's happening to the environment. So it, it has to do with dealing with people, with employees, with the producers, with the everyone that is part of the life cycle in the production. But I would say that this element could play a, an essential role in all this, this transition because it gives organizations and at the same time, 
states a grasp of what's happening at that moment and makes it more real time. Again, we can never have exactly real-time information, but it makes things more updated or more up-to-date. And all players, or most of the players, both public and private players, have the opportunity to understand what is happening at that in that place uh, with those stakeholders, those players, and at the same time, enforce the law when it is needed. Thank you so much, Tiak, for that answer. We have already discussed the role of governments when it comes to decreasing physical and transitional risks. But now I would like to highlight the financial institutions because there have been a lot of discussions about the potential carbon bias that financial markets have, the amount of financing that will be needed in order for us to actually have a just transition. So now my question is, from your perspective, what is the role of the financial institutions? How can they integrate uh, these environmental and climate change concerns into their operations? Or if we are still at the time of discussion in which we should focus more on the governments? Well, uh, thank you for that question. Obviously, it doesn't have an easy answer. But I, I would say that clearly, based on something that I have already mentioned, clearly the governments are not cannot be the only uh, responsible entities or organizations for this change. And I would say that increasingly, or more and more, it's up to the others, the other organizations, the other people, the citizens, the companies, and in all areas. Uh, and in financial areas, clearly, this is really something that is is becoming really essential because I think that most of the people still believe that the environment and climate, it's something that should be dealt by some people and some organizations, some companies, uh, some governments. And clearly, it's not. If we have to make some changes in our behavior, in the behavior of the governments or the people, families or companies, we need to understand how we will compensate the losses, right? But at the same time, maybe it's something that I would say mentally and in our brains, we have to clearly look at things from a different point of view, from a different perspective. And I'm sure that financial institutions also have to do it. So my suggestion would be that in all processes, environmental uh, considerations and climate considerations should be included. And here, in all contracts. I've been working with um, a colleague who leads a project, which is the Chancery Lane Project, and they have been working on including or a proposal that's based on the idea that in all contracts, all contracts should have environmental and climate clauses. And this is something that will change paradigms completely. If we understand uh, that contract law needs to have environmental and climate clauses, we will avoid all these discussions we are having now on climate litigation internationally. Like, why doesn't the International Court of Justice enact or emit or issue an advisory uh, opinion? Well, obviously that at the end, uh, eventually it will happen. But we have to prevent, we have to avoid these cases to arrive, to reach courts. We have to solve them between the parties. And if we include climate clauses, if we include environmental clauses and make contracts greener, that will make 
clearly things easier. And that's why I, I believe that institutional, uh, well, financial institutions should clearly consider, start to consider all these issues in their contracts, in their processes, in their different schemes. But it's something that it takes time. I would say that investing more on ESG, investing more on on CSR. And another example that we have been following recently is the example of the B corporations. It would be interesting if some financial institutions decided to become part of the B corporations movement, because that would clearly change the paradigm in a, a huge way. So the idea is not to put all emphasis in the money part, but uh, put more emphasis on the future and the future generations and the future of the planet. Thank you so much, Tiago. You have given us a lot of food for thought. And before closing this episode, what are maybe one or two biggest takeaways that you would like our listeners to take from this episode? Well, thank you so much for inviting me. It was a pleasure to to discuss this exciting issue and theme uh, with you. I would say that the two takeaways would be for governments and for all other stakeholders. The first one would be, please consider the environment and climate in your decisions. This doesn't work only for governments, stakeholders, or private stakeholders, but also for families and for individuals. Please always consider these issues in your in all your day-to-day decisions and the other one would have maybe it could be more for everyone as well when you take decisions and relevant decisions that will have consequences for the community or for nature it's really important to try to involve all stakeholders and when i say all stakeholders they're private they're public uh, they're third sector everyone because clearly if you hear everyone well Maybe processes will take a bit longer, but at the end, uh, the decision will be uh, the best one, as this is an issue that affects us all, and not only one person or one species. It affects our species, but all others, and the whole planet, and the future. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tiago.